Hi, and thanks for tuning in to, let's call this episode 5.5 of the Last Palabra podcast. Episode 5 went out on Monday, um, and this, rather than being an attempt at capturing and dumping the flow of information out of my brain, let's say this is uh, a rugby special, because uh, we are well into the first week of, well, into week two now, of the 2019 Rugby World Cup in Japan, and... I want to welcome uh, back, he was, he was on last week. This week we're going to do a whole episode dedicating to just chatting rugby with Matt. So hey Matt, how are you doing? Yeah, good, glad to be on again. Yeah, thank you for coming back again. Pleasure. What, I mean, did you enjoy the kind of the, the Rugby World Cup up till now? Uh, it's had its ups and downs, hasn't it? It's, it's, uh, it's certainly been enjoyable. Um, seen a lot of different things happening over the last few days, which has been very interesting. So, yeah. Well, we may as well get straight straight into it then on that note. Do you want to give us a kind of a a rundown of kind of your your most notable bits so far and what you've seen and what, what you're kind of you're thinking? Absolutely. So, first, let's start with the biggest games of the weekend. So, South Africa started with a war of attrition with New Zealand, which inevitably... Uh, I think we can agree the world's best team managed to repel with relative ease. Um, or scoring on the breaking, it's a very disconnected South African defence. Um, South Africa really had little to offer in attack other than the, the physical battle. Uh, and New Zealand were able to pull away. And unfortunately, even stand-up performances from Peter Steff to Toy, Damien De Allende, and, and also the, the mesmerising Cheslin Colby. South Africa really struggled to get a foothold in the game. Uh, Fiji offered a, an insight into their very dangerous best uh, with an incredible first half performance against what can be said to be a very flat looking Australia. Um, Half time, however, gave Australia the, the, the chance to reassess and, and realise that without possession and front football, the Fijian style of play is, is relatively easily neutralised. Some controversy surrounding a, an illegal tackle going unpunished and causing one of Fiji's most dangerous players to leave the field and possibly cutting his World Cup short was a bit of a turning point. And with World Rugby's uh, supposed stance on high and dangerous tackles getting more and more rigorous, they put themselves in a position where if they don't come out of this with a with a lengthy ban, um, they could end up looking very weak indeed. France also put on a very exciting first half, um, playing Argentina. Um, the rugby they played it sort of lent themselves to the, the France of old, and, and I'm sure that their greats would have been been pretty proud of running wild in broken play and dominating set piece which was a bit of a worry for Argentina, who had no real answer. And if not for a, a swift kick up the arse from uh, Mario Ledesma at half-time, you'd expected France to, to run away with the game. That wasn't the case, and, uh, and Argentina were able to short up their scrum and, and push the game within just a penalty of taking the victory. It wasn't to be, though, and, and France were able to hold on to their lead. England did a job against a, a much-improved Tongan team, uh, showing signs as to why they're, they're amongst the favourites for this tournament. However, there were many errors in the, this performance, especially from the English pack, who gave away needless penalties, and maybe a key area for improvement before uh, the USA on Thursday. Overall, though, England seemed to be in a very decent position moving through the group stages. With world one, world number one ranking, the, the rugby community expects a lot from Ireland. Um, but for two early tries, there was a little excitement come from Ireland's performance. Scotland stalling with, with very easy-to-read attacking structure and defensive areas just gave Ireland the platform to ease through their opening round dominating most facets of play. Italy showed the result of playing on the highest level, cruising past a Namibian side that's sure to be a fan favourite as plucky underdog, with Stephen Jones returning to Wales duty, helping his side ease past Georgia, whose defence, although very powerful, lacked organisation, 
which led winger Josh Adams to run the same line twice with two clean clean breaks, leading to easy scores. Finally, a far from dream start from Japan, who conceded early to Russia, managing to grind back into the game with an unbelievable offload um, and a wonder finish just to grab the lead before half-time, uh, before running away with the, the game with relative ease in the second half. And the key things to take away from the opening weekend is that defensive structure really isn't high on the uh, on the agenda for Tier 2 nations. Um, tier 1 nations are only warming up as they move towards the knockout stages, and finally we just need to get used to some very questionable officiating. Okay, cool, thank you. That yep. sort of gives us a, a solid overview. Um, one of the things, I mean, I've, I've for the most part, only watched highlights because it's been a, a MotoGP weekend and I was busy with all of that. Uh, but one of the things that, that most sort of astonished me, I guess, more than anything, astonished is probably the right word, is the some of the cool, like, footage that they got. Like, it seemed like the camera was almost... Like, it felt like it was watching a video game at points, because the camera was, like, almost down amongst them and, like, travelling through them. And that's... I mean, that's new this year, right? That's not something... It's definitely not something I've seen before um, from right. most other, other platforms. Um, I think it's just SITV trying to really generate sort of some um, some interest into into rugby, just sort of getting people involved who not aren't necessarily out and out fans, but it's it's giving a, a very different perspective on on rugby in, in general. I mean, that would make sense. Uh, it's quite a, a good way of getting more people involved is to kind of make it look cooler. Uh, certainly, that's something we do with motorbike racing. We try and generate cool graphics and cool like onboard camera mm. looks and stuff. Um, like for me, one of one of the things that I always sort of note is that any major event like this, whether it's the Olympic Games, Rugby World Cup, Football World Cup, is that you always get something like this, some kind of new technology that they're just trying out because it's a good opportunity to try it out. They don't have to bring it out in all of the matches. They can just set it up in a you know a couple of the the stadiums or a couple of the yeah. venues, and it's just a cool way of of bringing it out and seeing how it works. You know, before rolling it out, maybe to every game or to every match or to... Do you know what I mean? Yes. Um, honestly, I can't see us using that kind of um, recording technique used openly for a fair few years. Because the, the only ones that I've seen are sort of renders that have taken a few days to uh, to, um, to paste together. Um, but it's certainly interesting to see what they're, what they're coming up with in terms of future recording processes and... And whether we see it in the in the next few years or not, it's it's definitely uh, increasing interest in the, in the game. Yeah, no, no, it's cool. It's cool. I like it a lot. I guess. I mean, I've I've not really researched it that much. I guess it's a combination of like pulleys, motorized pulleys on like a on a 3D camera kind of thing. I guess. I don't know. Again, I should have yeah. researched this a it's, bit. It's not something that I've looked into, but I know. All of the players were wearing GPS trackers on their on the backs of their shirts. Um, so whether it's used oh, really? that kind of thing, I know it's very difficult to use the pulley systems um, while gameplay is sort of running, just because there's a lot of unpredictability about what's going to happen. So whether a team is going to kick and then what happens if it hits one of these wires or hits the camera, and this kind of thing. Yeah, so that's what I was kind of like going to say is that rugby in some respects, like compared to, let's say, football, is much more predictable in some respects because they have to move kind of in line, if you like. like do you know what I mean? There's not so much back and forth yeah. as there is with football, let's say. 
but at the same time it's kind of yeah you, you know one minute they're they're handing off the ball and passing along the the line and then the next minute there's a kick and it's up in the air and and obviously you don't want the the camera technology to exactly the game. and with modern day gameplay with a lot of teams are looking to play just to generate errors from the opposition so we're getting more and more of these kicking battles where the ball is just traveling back and forth um on the pitch and, and players stood in the middle so it's Again, from that perspective, it's very difficult to, to generate that kind of render on on in-game play situations. I'm going to spring a question on you now because it's just come to me. Um, so if, if, if you're not prepared, that's fine. Um, well, we're talking about the technology and stuff and the video-assisted referee and the VAR is coming to football in the kind of like past yes. year or so. But that's something that's been involved in rugby for a long time. It has, yeah. Have you got like any particular thought on that? I mean... I've got an opinion on it. <laughs> um, yeah, there are a few different. As, you know, my my thought is that in, in anything like this, kind of more accuracy is better. In general, I think any science and progress and you know technology is, on the whole, positive step forward. But it's had a lot of criticism in football, but in rugby, it's been it's kind of accepted. It's a normal thing. Yeah, well, with the the professional outlook on the game, it's becoming more and more important to get decisions right. And in my personal opinion, the more decisions we can get absolutely spot on can only be beneficial to the game. Um, I'm surprised there have been such backlash with football, um, which doesn't generally have the the same sort of values as rugby in that you, you treat the referee as always right. You've got this massive respect. Um, so it's almost maintaining a, an air of humanity about the decisions that are made and that there are going to be errors. But when we've got technology that's there, why not use it? It takes very little time to to come to a decision. And the, the way it's managed now is, especially in rugby, is is pretty seamless in decisions being made in under a couple of minutes. Um, and let's face it, they're, they're big fellas. They're running around the pitch for, for 85 minutes. They deserve a bit of a break, so why not? It just makes more sense to, to yeah. get more decisions right. So that probably sex us quite well into uh, something else we wanted to talk about. There's been a bit of, um, I don't know, controversial in this kind of opening week or so of the World Cup. And and that is the refereeing, because I saw that, um, was it Reese Hodge, sort of during the match, he, he wasn't punished for a, a dangerous tackle. Was it dangerous or was it high? <sighs> I don't know. Yeah, you but, needed to have. He's, like, he's since been fighting, right, like for the... So the lowering itself, it's been in flux for, for a number of years now in terms of the tackle height, um, what kind of tackle would justify a red card, what tackle would justify a yellow card, and, and just a penalty, etc. Um, so they've tried to bring in a large amount of clarity to that towards the, the Rugby World Cup. Um, so there are a few things that they look at, and that's the direct force that's applied. So if it's, if it's a very hard hit that's likely to be very dangerous, that airs more towards the red card. If it's shoulder contact to the head or neck, again, red card. But there can be certain mitigating factors. So say a player has dipped or is going down, maybe they've they've slipped, they're, they're going down towards the ground, it's very difficult to then make a, a, a legal tackle below the below the shoulder line. Um, with Reese Hodge, though, the interesting thing was that there was no dip. It was clear a shoulder to the, the face, fundamentally. And it's like I mentioned in our, our little roundup, it, it was to arguably Fiji's most dangerous player. We've been tearing him to shreds. And if you watch the video back, he's ran over Reese Hodge 
or he has been run over four or five times. Um, and it's just missed. And I'm not sure if that's a, a case of the, the technology not being there or the fact that people are just ignoring it, but it just brings into question whether the, the clarity is actually any better now. Okay. So it was maybe it, they should have gone back and had another look at the at that moment rather than it, it you know. Yes. It being kind of brushed over at the time and then... And, and it wasn't like there was an opportunity because the the player's gone down with a, a clear head injury caused from this, this high shot um, and obviously had to leave the field and didn't return after failing the, uh, the HIA testing. So it's it just seems crazy to me that it wasn't looked at. Anytime there is an, an injury to the head, it, it should be looked at. It's not like the, the guy in the box has got that much to do that you can't take a quick couple of seconds to just look over this, this one bit, bit of video clip. And it has no impact in play. They can all back. And and sorry, this just to, this guy in the box is it his responsibility to look over it and inform the referee as the kind of matches in progress, or is it up to the referee to? Refer so again, to it's been in flux, and it brings it back to if we've got okay. the technology, why not use it? So it's a clear penalty. The fourth fit? No, it's not fourth official. The video VAR video assistant referee, yeah. whatever they're going to call him. Um, think he can interrupt play if it's foul play so he can um, alert the referee to dangerous tackles or anything of, of a more foul play nature whereas if it's just a, a knock-on or forward pass something on that along those lines they generally keep themselves themselves okay but as the, the match stopped in that moment he, he could have just said hey you know that was a that was a dangerous tackle obviously he didn't see it i'm not sure how because it was replayed four or five times and with the commentators then wow. also looking at it and then ignoring it it just uh, it just seemed crazy so he's got a three game ban right? um I, something like that i can't uh, can't remember exactly not really. and is it kind of common for them to go and review and and cite things and and penalize things after the the kind of match is finished if you like i nearly said i could check the flag that's my <laughs> uh fairly common Fairly common. If something's missed, um, you have a citing process um, where you are treated as if you've been red carded at the time, um, and then you can have, like, say, he's retired, has got himself a, a little ban now, um, which works well, I think, because otherwise you'll get various issues just uh, getting away scot free. Okay, and so let's, you know, the refereeing standards kind of all together in this, you know, overall in this opening week have been criticised quite a bit. Um, with even World Rugby coming out and saying that it's just not been up to scratch. Um, they've teased us with these kind of throwaway um, statements saying that it's not been good enough, but until they actually do anything to change it, I can't see um, it having much impact. But I've always been very vocal in my, my disdain for, for French referees. I think they're their handling of gameplay is, is terrible. They they miss a large amount of decisions, and they're, overall they're pretty quiet during the game. So I'm not sure if that's down to any kind of language barrier or anything like this. But there is clear um, there's clear disparity between these French referees and say Nigel Owens, who's always talking and is is in quite high praise by players who who are refereed by him because he is constantly giving them updates as to what they're doing and and it leads for a much more flowing game of rugby where if someone's doing something that's not actually having that much of an impact in the game, he'll tell them and then it'll sort itself out rather than a French referee standing there watching it, stopping the game for a penalty uh, when it just didn't really need to get to that position. 
So as a player, would you kind of expect the referees to kind of go along chatting with you, almost kind of like coaching you in, in terms of the, the laws of the game? On the international stage, you would expect players to, to understand the laws of the game. It's just these um, I mean, small areas <laughs> where if someone's offside, he'll, he'll let them know that they're offside and they can then take a step back. Again, it's not had any impact on the game. Um, there's no reason to give a penalty away and stop the game altogether and, and then wait for the game to, to continue. Um, as you move down the uh, rankings and say move towards grassroots rugby, um, you tend to move away from that with more authoritarian, um, former PE teacher style. Um, yeah, it's as a player, you'd expect them to, to be in constant conversation. So the, the referees take a kind of almost like a preemptive approach. Like, I'm telling you if you're going to commit a foul so you can avoid committing it so we can keep playing. Is that Exactly. And it just leads to a much better flow of the game. I mean, that's better for the players and the, the spectators, no? Much better, much better. I mean, if the game is constantly start-start with no flow, it, it leads to very difficulty, great difficulty in, in setting up attacking structures or um, defending with a, any intensity just because you are literally just stop-go. So, World Rugby have said the match officials team recognised that performances were not consistently of the standards set by World Rugby and themselves. And they've said that they're confident of the highest standards of officiating moving forward. So what, what are they likely to do to make sure that the the officials fall into line? Honestly, I can't see them doing much. Um, each official, after each game, will get a... a will, they'll sit down with a, a member of some referee and coaching staff and they'll go through each decision they've made. Um, but there's often a, a society of referees that will back a referee, um, and it's almost an, an us-versus-them kind of situation where if a referee's made a bad decision, they'll look for justification as to why they've made a bad decision, rather than looking at it and saying, you not fair enough, it was a terrible call, um, and we'll look to change it in the future. Um, but there's been such clear evidence, especially, say, the South African-New Zealand game. I mean, I put a video on Twitter that just highlights all of the decisions that were made and it just doesn't make for good watching, really, for, a, for especially for a South African fan. And I know they've been fairly vocal in the media about it. Yeah. I mean, so we're at a crucial stage, really. Okay, it's only the opening match. But for, for a team like like South Africa, it was a crucial moment in their, their World Cup campaign, if you like. You know, this could have a, bad decisions here could make a difference between whether teams get beyond the group stages or beyond the, the knockout stages, yes. no? I mean, for, for South Africa, I don't think it's going to be an issue for them getting through. I don't see them having much more of a challenge in that group. Um, but then your your seeding has changed, so the, the teams you play later on in the, the knockout stages changes. Um, and for a team that bases so much of their attack around a very strong set piece to allow them to gain front football, um, the decisions that were made around the scrum, which, to be honest, were outrageously bad, Um just didn't allow them to get that foothold so they, they played very open rugby which isn't like them um and it just didn't feed into to how they wanted to play because they were getting penalized for for, for what for the scrum or... it was more a case of, of a lack of um penalization so um, it's clear to see in, in videos that joe moody who's the new zealand prop was constantly dropping his elbow to the ground, which completely stops any kind of force being generated through the scrum. Um, so if, say, South Africa were in a defensive position where they generally would dominate a, a set piece like that, they weren't able to then get onto the front foot to then 
defend for a turnover. They were always sort of chasing their feet a little bit. Okay. So, I and mean, we hope that the, these standards will pick up now then in the in the coming week or so. Well, we hope so. Easiest way to make sure. <laughs> Hopefully, don't next time. Games. Yeah, yeah. I guess that's it. They need to rotate their their referees a bit better. Yeah, but unfortunately, the head of the referees is a French bloke, so we'll see what happens. <laughs> Matt and his disdain for French referees. Exactly. You mentioned to me uh, before we kind of started recording about a new rule as well that I think relates to this the kind of tackle that you mentioned before with um, Reece yes. Hodge. So is this a, is this a fixed rule that they're changing, or are they? Is it something they're kind of trialing? Um, in terms of the the tackle height and what is deemed to be a, a dangerous tackle. Yeah. yeah. So, like I said before, it's, it's very much something that's been in flux. So across various different levels, it's they've had different trials running where they, the tackle height is reduced from shoulder down to sort of nipple line, um, with anything over the shoulder. So something called a seatbelt tackle, which is often a, a cover tackle where a, a hand or arm goes over the shoulder of an opposition player, never really does that much damage. Um, definitely not a dangerous tackle, but is starting to get penalised. Um, just an attempt to, to lower the tackle height. Um, the other things they've been running is mitigating circumstance. So there are certain aspects of a tackle that, if deemed to be dangerous, would warrant a red card. So there's um, shoulder contact with their, the head or neck, um, a lack of arms used in a tackle, um, these kind of things that would warrant a red card. However, with the mitigating factors or mitigating circumstance, the, um, the referees are allowed to have a certain amount of say in, in how they deem the, the, the tackle to have, have happened. So say a player's slipped or a player's going down towards the ground um, and has dipped just prior to the, the tackle, which we saw a couple of times in the Samoa game, where two players were, were yellow carded, which, again, French referee, a couple of terrible decisions where they should have been red because it's, it's clear shoulder contact at the head with very minimal change of, of height from the, the attacking player. But it's these mitigating circumstances that allow for the referees to have, have more a say of what what happens during that game. Okay, so it's kind of like on the one hand, it's making more kind of concrete rules, if you like. But on the other hand, it's giving more sort of subjective power to the referees. Yeah, it's an attempt to make things very clear cut. Um, but I'm not sure on the success, just because the mitigating factor it's it's a situation where it needs to be black and white. Um, but it's it's not really direction that I don't think rugby is able to to head in just simply because the the tackle height itself is constantly changing. Um, as long as people are being penalised, happy days. But I'm not sold on mitigating factors simply because there's still amount of decision to be made as to what makes the the dip sufficient dip to become um, a mitigating factor. And with any sort of rule like that, where there is some loophole that could be played it will likely to be played i guess yes we're talking about competitive sport it's very much a a way to ease the the sort of the stress on referees so they're able to make more decisions more clearly um which as an idea should be should be supported but i'm just not sold on on the mitigating factors fair enough any surprises in the kind of the opening week um 
I think France Argentina was a bit closer than you sort of maybe anticipated. No, the thing was I had no anticipation for the game. It was very much you never know which <laughs> which team's going to turn up. So a team like France, who's sort of historically has played a very open game um, in recent years, their their coaching style has changed that to try and fit in more with the the norms of international rugby, where they're playing more structures, um, and it's kind of stifled their ability to play. Um, but it seems that moving into this World Cup, they've got this very um, open style back, um, which is brilliant to see for the uh, for the common fan. Um, maybe a little bit worrying for for whoever France appear to be facing later on in the tournament. Um, but yeah, it was also good to see Argentina get some good form in the in the second half. Um, again, it's a team that's, that's very much struggled outside of World Cups over the last few years. And England, it looks like quite a convincing win, 35-3. to What is generally, from what I can gather, that the performance wasn't up to much, despite the score. The score doesn't reflect the kind of... The no, but early on stages in a World Cup, I think any team is just looking to get the, the first victory on the on the card. Um, I'm not sure anyone will be too worried and will be pretty happy just to get the W. Um, same with Ireland. I mentioned I before that so. Ireland weren't overly impressive, but to get a victory over Scotland, who again, it's a team that you're not sure who's going to turn up. So just to get the win out there, the, the um, it just lends itself to a a more interesting stage, uh, latter stage of the groups. Okay, uh, England of course play uh, USA tomorrow. What can we expect from USA? Um, so with the USA, the, the game itself has been growing pretty rapidly in the US um, with a professional league. Um, um, and that's sort of it's it's had the the draw of a few big names going over. So um, for England fans, like so Ben Foden now playing in New York, um, Matthew Bastereau has just signed a contract to go again over to New York. Um, so it's really getting a good pull in the in towards the the domestic league. Um, I'm not sure how that itself is going to translate into the international stage. Um, in terms of sevens, they've they've grown massively and have put in some in, really incredible performances. But the sevens itself, um, it's very relatively easy to make an impact. Um, so basically, the inclusion of a couple of Olympic level sprinters and investment in the world's best skills coaches is probably going to do a job at that on that stage. Um, but fifteens is it's just a different animal altogether. So attacking and defensive structures are, are much more complex, and I think it will take a, a little bit longer to cement any kind of development into a top international setup but i mean if there's any country in the world that can bring a a team to the top of the game very quickly on the world stage it's the united states right? absolutely they're very much either if they're not involved they don't care but if they put a little bit of investment into it it's it's huge so we'll see how that goes i think possibly not with this world cup but moving towards um the next four years i reckon they'll, they'll really start to put in a, a few performances that could start shocking people and it looks like Eddie Jones is going to bring in almost a completely different England lineup, uh, including a couple of, of debuts as well on the international stage. No? Uh, yeah. So we've got the likes of uh, McConaughey, who's again he's come from a, a sevens background, um, should have made his debuts throughout the um, the warm up games, but through various injuries he's uh, he's had to pull out. And then you've got they've got also got other a young players, so Joe Cocker Singer um, is making a a World Cup debut. You got Lewis Ludlam, who's again we talked about him before. He's, he's a very 
it's a huge impact to come off the bench. Um, so we'll see how he does start in the game. Uh, and then apart from that, we're pretty cemented in positions. So maybe not necessarily a young addition, but Willie Hines at nine, who's shown great control for Gloucester. Um, and as long as they're... The England pack can stay on the front foot. The likes of Hines and Ford should be able to uh, to really put in a performance. Yeah, I mean, Jones has, has sort of said he, he wants a different approach against the United States, saying that they want to start fa- uh, fast. Um, whereas in Tonga, they said that they kind of let them play for the first 20 minutes or so with the intention of then of kind of building it up. Yeah, which is it's what you'd expect from Eddie. Um, with... There aren't too many big names throughout the USA team. Um, I think looking through, they've got players like AJ McGinty, Martin Acefo, Blaine Scully, but those are the only ones you'll really sort of, you'll have heard of before. Um, so it, it makes sense to want to start that game very quickly and really put a strong performance out from the, from the first minute. Um, and Tonga, you, you just never know how are they going to turn up? So the week before they lost 92-5 or whatever it was to New Zealand. So just to get the win, I'm, I'm sure they're, they're fairly happy with that, no matter what he's saying in the in the press. Sure, sure, sure. Uh, so in terms of sort of spectator, I mean, it's at like what, midday, something like that? Tomorrow? Uh, or today, depending on when you're listening to it. <laughs> uh, or where in the world you're listening. Yeah, late morning, I think. Yeah, right. Um, in terms of a spectator match, is it, are we expecting kind of like a lot of action at the start and then maybe England to kind of sit back and, and allow the US to attack a little bit? Or um, I don't think many teams will look to sit back during these, these opening um, engagements. I mean, majority of players are looking to perform and looking to, to send a message to say that they want to get selected in the later stages. So if any player is, is seen to be, to be letting off, I'm sure it's, it's not going to bode well for them in, in those stages moving forward but I highly expect England to, to run away with this and if not I'm sure, I'm sure they'll be pretty disappointed Okay, how any other kind of matches coming up that you've you've earmarked I'm having a look at the fixtures now, a big one on Sunday Australia-Wales I guess uh, um, Yeah that'll be, uh, be pretty interesting to see um, there aren't too many big fixtures in this this round, I mean South Africa, Namibia. Um, I think there would be skeptics. We'll probably brand this South Africa A versus South Africa B. But there's a, a huge amount of pride in the Namibians they have in their shirt, and historically, it's been primarily an amateur or semi-professional outfit. So, it's really interesting to see how they go. And I'm I'm sure I said before they'll be a, a fan favourite as underdogs. Um, they'll have seen what Japan did to South Africa four years ago, and I'm sure they'll be uh, chomping at the bit to sort of make that kind of impression. And and what about Japan Island on Saturday? You mean the home, the host nation, taking on the number one in the world, uh, early doors as well in a fairly. I mean the, that group seems to have the the kind of the headlines already written. What what can we expect for this one? Um, I expect another somewhat dull and efficient island performance. Um, their game plan in general hasn't been too wide and expansive, so too massive pushover tries against uh, against Scotland um, and not really showing too much invention in the back line. I mean, granted, um, their opening game, the, the weather took a, a pretty hefty turn for the worst, so playing in, in a tsunami almost. Um, so we'll see what they can do on a dry track, but again, I don't see them doing anything more than an efficient job. Um, 
but I know the, the majority of the rugby community will be keeping their fingers crossed that Japan can sort of put another performance out um, and really impress the public because I think they need it moving forward. What about, I'm just looking at the fixtures, what about Canada? What, what do you make of Canada? I mean, they've got two big matches coming up. They've got Italy, who they lost to against in, in 2015, right? Mm. In, the, in the World Cup. And then not long after that, they've got, so that's on, that's tomorrow, in fact, Italy-Canada today, depending on where you are. Yeah. And then and the next match after that is, is New Zealand. So they're up against it. Yes. It's very t- I mean, they're, they're not, with New Zealand and South Africa, they're not going to get out of that group, realistically. No. I think what all Canada are looking to do is, is gain that third position where they're, they're guaranteed place and then at the World Cup in four years' time. I think they'll probably struggle against Italy. Um, in the warm-up games and throughout the Six Nations, Italy themselves have been playing on the, the top level. So they're, they're really sort of, in their mindset, they've been playing on that level for, for many years. Um, although not massively successfully, but they've been competing on various occasions. So Canada themselves, I'm not sure they're just going to have it in the tank to really push forward. I mean, that being said, I know today... Um, Uruguay beat Fiji, which was a massive shock after Fiji's big performance against Australia. Um, so maybe it is the uh, the year for the relative unknown. We'll, uh, we'll only have to wait and see. I mean, Uruguay, of course, have got Georgia, so that could be. Okay, Georgia didn't get the result against Wales by a long shot, but they've got a massive scrum, absolutely huge scrum. Yes. Some uh, scary scrum, yeah. Yeah, right? I mean, I remember you telling me about it, and then. Having seen it, I was like, okay, that's, that's what Matt was talking about. Mm. No, very uh, scary pack. And with uh, Gogodza coming out of retirement on fundamentally the uh, request of the Prime Minister, I'm sure, uh, I'm sure they're expecting big things from him. Any other kind of standout matches that we can look forward to in the, in the next sort of seven days? Um, nothing really throws itself out at me. I mean, Australia-Uruguay will be quite a good game after Uruguay's first victory over a Fiji. Um, and then obviously England Argentina itself will be uh, pretty heavy. Um, apart from that, I think we'll, we're in for a few shocks and a few surprises, but we'll have to wait and see. And last thing then, before we kind of wrap it up, what do you think of of the World Cup so far in terms of uh, how they, you know, in terms of the, the spectacle, if you like, the show? Uh, Japan as a host nation, what's your, what's your kind of thoughts so far as in terms of a, a, a cup? It seems to be pretty impressive. Um, obviously, with uh, the growth of rugby in Japan over the last few years and a, a pretty decent league structure, which has sort of allowed the likes of Quade Cooper and Will Genia to sign contracts with teams that aren't even in the top tier of Japanese rugby, it's really lending itself to be the next rugby nation. Um, and that's showing itself in the, the games and the prep for those games. Um, they're really putting on a show, which... Uh, to be fair, at this kind of event, you wouldn't expect any less. But um, it certainly seems like the kind of event that you would hate to miss out on and have to watch it on TV at home. Like England did four years ago. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Okay. Um, anything else before we wrap it up for, for this sort of this week, if you like? Uh, I don't think so. Cool. Shall we... Uh... So have another go next week. I'll certainly be around. I'll certainly have watched a fair few games of rugby over the, the the next few days. So yeah, let's uh let's sit down and have a chat.
yeah, I mean, I'm actually, I'm, I'm visiting, I'm in England this weekend. <laughs> so uh, hopefully I'll get to see some actual rugby rather than just watching highlights in between motorbike races. Well, fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. Hey, Matt, thank you very much once more for coming on and sharing your, your rugby knowledge. Always a pleasure. Pleasure's all mine. I'll uh, let you go and yeah, we'll speak again next week. Perfect. Cheers, Cheers mate. So thanks for listening to episode five and a half of the Last Palabra podcast. We'll be back on Monday with episode six. Uh, follow Matt. You can find Matt. He's on, uh, you can go to his website, in fact, primalathletic.com, where he'll be sharing all his insights of the 2019 Rugby World Cup as we go on. Um, he's also on Twitter and Instagram. I'll be tagging him uh, in all the posts, of course, if you follow me on Twitter and Instagram, where I'm at the Last Palabra. Uh, do the subscribing and sharing thing. And uh, thanks again for tuning in. Be back on Monday for episode six.